Tonight's reading is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 19. It's on page 1061 in the Church Bibles. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. My name is uh, Nate Johnson. I'm the youth worker here. Give a shout out to the youth. All right. It's good. See you guys. Like a row. They're sitting all over. They're among us. Um, I'll be preaching on this, this road to Emmaus. It's one of my favorite passages, and it's, it's Cleopas and the Stranger. And uh, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, you know, you, as a pat, you have to think about illustrations, things that you're going to do in your sermon. I was thinking, what, uh, uh, this story reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite stories, which is the Lord of the Rings. And, and Tolkien's actually quite good at this, at these strangers who are cloaked or who are veiled, but have a hidden majesty about them. So um, Gandalf is Gandalf the Grey. He's a wanderer. And he eventually dies and comes back. And even then, he's kind of cloaked, but of course, he becomes Gandalf the White and he leads, helps lead to victory. Of course, uh, Frodo is one of the little people, and yet there is a grandeur, there is a nobility that is revealed in him as he sacrifices himself and he takes on the, the burden of the One Ring. And then, of course, there's Aragorn, uh, Strider. And, and it's very interesting because he is introduced at the beginning of the story. And the, the hobbits, as many of you know, maybe not everybody though, um, are fleeing from danger and they're very frightened and they're anxious. And so they're trying to get to safety in, in Rivendell. It's a, it's a place the, of refuge. And uh, on the way, they get to a place called the Prancing Pony, uh, which is an inn. And, and they're looking for help and they're approached by a ranger named Strider who looks a bit worse for wear. And, um, and as they're wondering whether they can trust him, Frodo receives a letter from Gandalf, and, uh, and, and in the letter it closes, it has this, these lines right here. All that is gold does not glitter, and not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither, and deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, and a light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken, and the crownless again shall be king. He comes to them as a wandering ranger, someone who's just working hard to keep people safe. But he will be revealed eventually as a king. And it's very similar because in this story, Jesus comes to these two disciples and they don't know exactly who he is, but he too is a glorious king. 
In the chaos and confusion following the crucifixion of Jesus, two disciples are seen plodding slowly out of Jerusalem. Reports are filtering out that the tomb is empty and some are claiming Jesus is alive, but nothing is clear. Maybe their broken hearts simply can't take any more. They're probably two of the harder-headed, the more practically-minded of the disciples. They're down to earth. They know what they need to do. The dream is dead. They need to move on with their lives. No time for trying. uh, No time for crying. No time for whinging. It's sad, but it's time to move on. If the rest of the disciples want to sit around Jerusalem and they want to mope a bit, that's up to them but it's time to move forward. It's interesting, these are uh, not two of the um, uh, apostles, like the, the 12 or the 11 after Judas uh, passes away. Um, they're, from, they're from that second ring, that part of Jesus' community. They were close friends with the disciples. They were close friends of everyone, and they knew everybody in a very familiar way. And their name, uh, his name is Cleopas, and they don't say who the second person is, though we know from John that there's a Clopas who is actually Jesus' uncle. His, um, his wife is Mary's brother. So it's very likely this uh, Cleopas is Jesus' uncle, and it may have been his wife, uh, another Mary, who was walking with him, or it may have been his son, Simeon, who ended up being the second bishop of Jerusalem. It's kind of an interesting story there. But they're on their way. It only mentions Cleopas. And as they're walking along, a stranger joins them. Anyway, they're joined by what I would say is a joyful stranger. They are leaving Jerusalem. They are moving forward. And in their sorrow, their despair, and their disillusion and broken hearts, Jesus draws near to them. He comes to them as someone unknown. He's a stranger, and yet he knows them so well. And he's bringing to them what they need the most. They're kept from recognizing him. You know, he is the hero returning incognito to bring hope and joy. I'm not sure if Jesus disguised himself (laughs) for the youth. (laughs) I'm not sure if Jesus disguised himself or if he used his sort of Jesus Jedi powers to... uh, you know, you cannot see me. <laughs> I cannot see you. But, uh, but Jesus has disguised himself. He wants to keep his presence a secret. Jesus wants to surprise them. As I was thinking about this story, I realized that one of the reasons I love this story is that there is joy leaking out at the seams. At every turn, there are inside jokes, um, plays on words, verbal and dramatic irony. Jesus and the narrator keep winking and laughing with the reader. And when the story was told, I'm sure again and again, I'm sure Cleopas and his friends and everyone just laughed and laughed about how they just didn't realize who Jesus was, and he kept dropping hint after hint after hint. If we can see the passage again, I'll just point out a couple things. It's very, it's, there's a lot of humor here in the text. It says, um, the same day they're walking to the village, verse 15, as they're walking along, Jesus comes, they don't recognize him, verse 17. What are you discussing as you're walking along? You know, they stood still their faces downcast. Man, this is so, Luke is so great at this stuff. He just paints this picture. They're walking along, talking, discussing. It's uh, from the text, we get the idea that the discussion is quite vigorous, 
but boom, they just stop, and they're gutted, and their faces are down. Cleopas says, don't you know what's been happening? And Jesus says, what what things? You know, he's been the center of the story. I, I, I just can't imagine Jesus as he says it. Of course, he realizes they're sad. But there's a smile playing at the edge of his lips because he has a secret that will change their lives. And, and he can hardly probably hold it in. They keep talking, and they said about Jesus of Nazareth, he's a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priest rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, this is the third day, and some of the women saw him. You know, he's standing right in front of them, you know. And then some of the pains went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus He's standing, of course, right in front of them. You know, if you look at the next, uh, there's a little bit more here as well, the next uh, passage. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. And then he starts explaining the scriptures to them. And then they want him, uh, then he pretends like he's going to move on uh, as they approach the village. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And then finally at table, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he gave thanks. And you can almost, you know, dramatically, you think about it, he takes the bread and he's like, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. And then he breaks it and they get it. The penny drops. And I I think throughout this text, there's all this um, irony and these sort of winks and nods that are going on. On the way from Emmaus, Jesus is waiting for just the right moment to reveal the best of secrets. He lets the suspense build, and of course, like all the best storytellers, Jesus doesn't tell, he shows. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Jesus, but he joins them for a meal, and in the breaking of bread, he reveals who he is. That's a loaded statement. It has to do with the Eucharist. I won't necessarily dive into that tonight. But I do want to return to this theme of joy and happiness that permeates this text. While there is a deep sorrow that has lain over the world because of sin, because of wickedness, our choices, the choices of others, and and, and we're estranged from nature, We get diseases, there's uh, natural disasters, and even God himself has been touched by a deep sorrow. But there is a deeper magic. There is something deeper and more real and something that will last longer, and it is the joy of God. It is the happiness and playfulness of God that will last for all eternity. We know that Jesus went to the cross and he suffered for the joy set before him. He was willing to pay the price because great joy, relationship, and love were on the other side. God is committed to bringing great joy to the world. In this story, again, we see this playfulness of God. There's something uh, like a a Shakespearean farce about it. A main character in disguise having a conversation full of double entendres and rich with irony. We are meant to smile and laugh. We serve a God that smiles and winks and laughs. 
For those of us who've been in church a long time, or maybe those of us who've grown up in the church, the the familiarity can breed a sort of been-there-done-that attitude. But in God, there are never-ending horizons of exploration and joy. There is a bursting creativity and a relentless verve to the heart of God. Life is hard, and we need to work hard too, but it's also meant to be a playful romp into the future. Jesus returns to his disciples in a heartbreaking and serious moment, and yet there is an unmistakable smile about his lips. He has returned with news of great joy for all the people. We know this is a big theme for Luke. At the very beginning, he says, the, the angels announce it. This will be great joy, good news of great joy for all the people. The last two verses of the book, there are, the, the disciples are now giving glory to God because they are joyful. There is a joy that sort of uh, bookends uh, the, the gospel of Luke. In his gospel, he has two songs about rejoicing. He's the, he, Luke is also the one who tells us the three great parables where uh, there's a, a woman who loses part of her dowry, but she recovers it. Um, there's a guy who loses a lost sheep. And of course, there's the son who's, uh, who, whose relationship with his father is broken, but who eventually is restored. And in every situation, God or the character who, who God represents throws a massive party. There's this massive celebration that joy runs all the way through it. It's in the book of Luke that where we find out that God will somehow redeem all of humanity. Every, uh, every slave will be set free. Uh, all our well-being will be healed. It's an amazing book, and, and joy permeates it. Following Jesus' uh, torture and crucifixion, Jesus' resurrection announces that death and sorrow and failure and weakness and betrayal and slavery and oppression and disappointment are living on borrowed time. They have been conquered and redeemed. The crucifixion of Jesus was the most wicked and evil act ever done in human history. And yet God reached into that most wicked situation and he turned that moment into our deliverance. It reveals that God is able to reach into any situation, however intractable, however hopeless, and turn it for good. Nothing is too hard for him. All our failures, our sin, our pride, our idiocy, God is able to forgive, redeem, and turn for good. The stranger that meets Cleopas on the road is a joyful stranger. At first, though, Cleopas and his companions are not in on the joke. They're sad, they're disillusioned, they're confused. And while I do believe there's something of uh, an element of playfulness in this, Jesus' delay in revealing himself, there's more to it than that. Jesus wants to address again in a definitive manner an understanding, the understanding of his own identity, vocation, and destiny as the Messiah. He wants to make clear what it means to be Messiah. And he also wants to make it clear what it means to be his follower. As much as Jesus tried to warn them ahead of time, the disciples simply could not understand that Jesus had to suffer and die before he'd be raised up and exalted. Jesus returns again to the Hebrew Scriptures to explain that that suffering must precede the crown. 
Suffering before vindication and exaltation is a major theme in the Old Testament. Every major Old Testament character, everybody from the Hebrew Scriptures, everyone who does anything significant for God suffers before, before being vindicated and exalted. Abram had to wait years and years and years past human hope before his promised son arrived. Joseph was sold as a slave and thrown into prison before he was made prime minister of Egypt. Moses has to go into the desert for 40 years and loses all self-confidence, his dreams and hopes shattered. King David is running for his life for years before he begets, becomes king. Many of the major prophets were killed when they stood up to power and called them out for, for not seeking, for not doing right and doing justice. Throughout Scripture, suffering and even death precede exaltation. And Jesus knew that this was not merely a sort of curious fact about his own life, but something that was written into his vocation and destiny. It was not optional. For Jesus' disciples, that's us or those who long to follow him, he never sugarcoats the call to follow him. If you're going to follow me, Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. There is a deep, profound joy in God, but we live in a world of sin and suffering. If we're to be a part of Christ's work of redeeming the world, we cannot shy away from the cost involved. If we desire the crown of glory, we must also embrace the cross of Christ. It's not masochistic suffering. It's not suffering for its own sake, but a willingness to do whatever it takes to make sure that as many as possible can experience the overflowing, ever-exploring, never-ending love and joy of God. There is a sense in which the love of God is a free gift which we must only receive from Him. Yet to follow Jesus into God's love involves a great cost. We must die to ourselves and put Him first above everything. Everything else must come second. Instead of our own will or glory, His kingdom must come. His will must be done. But knowing God now and for eternity is worth it. We long for a destiny, we long for a vocation that is worth everything we have. And Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth following with everything you have. There are a lot of different things that you can give your life to. But Jesus is, he says he's the way, the truth, and the life for a reason. He is worth it. And it's worth the cost. It's worth the, the struggle. It's worth the pain to follow Jesus and to give your life to him. They wanted someone or something worth following. It's really interesting. These disciples, when they hear this message, are not put off. Rather, they said, we're not our hearts burning within us. They are inspired. They want to pursue something, they want to pursue something that is worth suffering for. They want something or someone worth following, whatever the cost. And Jesus reveals that he himself, who's, the, who's calling this life of eternal relationship and reward, he, he says, this is worth it. I'm worth it. He is the challenging and inspiring stranger. Just to 
go back for a second. If you've lost sight of joy in your life today, and I'm not saying that life isn't hard. You know I'm not saying that. Some sort of shallow thing. But there is a deep, profound joy. And if somehow you have lost sight of joy in your life, I'd encourage you to begin seeking God about it. Sometimes when I'm struggling with joy in my life, I'll say, God, I, I'm losing my joy. Something, I'm losing something. And I know mental health issues, things are complicated. So I, I don't, don't want to be glib about this. But there is something to recognize that it, there is something very real at the bottom of everything in the heart of God that's joyful. And that that is our destiny in a very deep and profound way. Also, if maybe you've been looking for something to inspire you. Maybe your life has felt drab or, or, or a little bit empty, and God is calling you to a greater obedience and to give yourself to Him in a fresh way. But of course, this conversation never happens unless they welcome the stranger who journeys with them. They don't even begin to have these conversations. They have, they have no idea who the stranger is. He could have been difficult or dangerous, but they reach out and they welcome him. It could have been cultural, but I think years of traveling with Jesus made an impact on them. He was always engaging, chatting, and eating meals with whomever was willing. Jesus had told them over and over again that whenever they welcomed a stranger, they welcomed him. And beyond their wildest hopes and dreams, when they welcome this stranger, they are welcoming the risen Christ. Jesus waits for their invitation. He doesn't want to keep going. He doesn't want to keep going on, but he doesn't force himself on them. He waits for their vigorous insistence. He says, uh, they say, please stay with us. It, it might have compromised their safety. They were going to have to give up their food. But they open their lives and they open their homes to this stranger. In so many ways, it's easy to become afraid and to draw ever smaller circles of comfort and safety around our lives. And let's be honest, these two disciples have been through a lot. But even in their place of pain and hurt, they still reached out. They could have said, man, I just can't do anymore. I'm done, man. My tank is empty. But they're walking along and they, in their pain and hurt, they still reach out. Honestly, this church has been so welcoming to me and my wife in a transition time. And I can't thank you enough. It may be, may be the most welcoming church I've actually ever been to. And I've worked about five churches. <laughs> and... Um, but I do want to challenge myself, and I want to challenge all of us here today. Are we welcoming the stranger in our lives? This could be as simple as engaging someone in meaningful conversation on public transport. It could be choosing to practice hospitality beyond your comfort zone. It could mean finding ways to love and serve strangers who come from other parts uh, of the world to live among us. And it sounds like our church is engaged in that already. Like Jesus in the story, God is the joyful, playful stranger. He is the challenging and inspiring stranger. But is he the stranger that is welcome? Well, I've applied this welcoming the stranger uh, text to, to the people, you know, to being hospitable to people. I, I do want to turn this toward God. Maybe God is a stranger to you. But you can feel your heart burning tonight through the worship you can feel your heart inspired. You can feel yourself challenged. 
There is a joy you long for, but it's wrapped in a desire for a destiny worth giving your life for. That joy, that destiny is Jesus himself. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He says, will you welcome me? Will you follow me? Will you give your life to me? God may be stranger or a stranger, but he need not remain so.